Hello and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Thanks for joining us. Quite a bit to unpack in this episode, and we'll start with China. As President Xi Jinping consolidates his power, the Chinese broker a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia that leaves the U.S. sitting on the sidelines, and as President Biden turns around and bans TikTok from all federal devices. Where is TikTok based? You guessed it. Speaking of the president, when he ran, he had a proposal to shore up Social Security's finances. Presto changeo, his latest budget has no tax or spending increases related to the popular program. What gives? Also, how do you feel about permanent daylight savings time? Wouldn't bother me, but I'm just one person. Off we go. I'm continually perplexed with the love-hate relationship between the U.S. and China. On the one hand, we rake them over the coals for their ideology, which I'm not sure most of us even understand. On the other hand, we seem to have no problem with Chinese investment in U.S. companies and, of course, people buying goods that are manufactured in China. More on that in a minute. As of last year, there are 261 Chinese companies listed in the U.S. with a combined value of $1.3 trillion. Doesn't sound much like an enemy, does it? And there's more. Chinese investment in the U.S. stands at over $118 billion annually. But let's look at governance in the world's most populous state. President Xi Jinping has consolidated his power by winning the presidency by a unanimous vote of the legislature. He's already won control of the Chinese Communist Party last year. His mandate, according to Western media, involves reviving the nation's struggling economy first and foremost. China was, of course, hit hard by COVID and the zero COVID policy that China pursued, and it not only hurt their economy, but triggered widespread protests and as I'm sure most of us know, protest is not something that goes on every day in China. The U.S., as it has done historically, tends to look at the Chinese primarily through the lens of its own interest. And that should surprise no one. The Chinese balloon is but one of those points of tension. Taiwan is, of course, another. So, too, is China's position on the war in Ukraine. The Biden administration has accused Beijing of contemplating sending lethal support to Russia, something that China vehemently denies. One thing the U.S. can't force the Chinese to do is stop doing business with Moscow. As long as there's a favorable trading relationship, especially when it comes to energy, the Russians can thumb their nose at Western sanctions. The Chinese government's top priority is to calm the jitters in the domestic business community brought on by the government's heavy-handed response to COVID and the policy that followed. And then there's this. While the U.S. government wasn't paying attention, the Chinese brokered an agreement between long-standing enemies, Iran and Saudi Arabia. This is, in the words of one Western analyst, a big deal. First, it was announced in Beijing. Secondly, the U.S. could not have pulled it off if it wanted to since Washington has no relations, diplomatic or otherwise, with Tehran. To understand how important this deal is, you have to take a step back and look at the Middle Eastern landscape. 
It's been dominated by the U.S. for decades. Ironically, the Israelis have been cultivating the Saudis for the last little while, facilitated by the Biden administration. And then comes a deal between an ally and an enemy, brokered by, in theory, another enemy. Until now, China has not been a major player in the Middle East. This deal makes them one. The Biden administration has downplayed the importance of the agreement. And of course, that has to do with the fact that they point out the differences between the Saudis and Iran and the fact that those differences have a lot to do with religion. And of course, there's also a proxy war in Yemen that's lasted almost a decade and has cost countless lives, countless lives. There are inarguably details that will have to be ironed out. The question is, who will be the facilitator, the U.S. or China? Beijing has, as we mentioned earlier, twin objectives moving forward. Domestically, it wants to rebuild its economy. Internationally, it wants to rival the U.S. for influence, especially in Asia, which is why there's such a big thing over Taiwan, and now, as we've seen, in the Middle East as well. How is the U.S. to respond to all this? First, the Biden administration has to look at whether the us-against-them mentality that's dominated Sino-American relations since 1949 works in 2023. That doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to Chinese human rights abuses. However, have you noticed there hasn't been a lot of talk lately about human rights for the Uyghurs? It doesn't seem like that's a front-burner issue like it was in the not-too-distant past. One also has to wonder the practical realities of banning China-based TikTok on grounds of national security. Republicans take the threat of TikTok algorithms spreading to disinformation to Americans that some are getting behind a nationwide ban. A ban on TikTok? Really? Now, keep in mind how Americans use TikTok. If you look at how young people use it, it's almost like a video game. They put stuff up, it gets spread around, and of course, there are some people who have actually gotten famous from it. But is it being used by the Chinese to collect data, to collect information, to in fact engage in espionage? I assume that's what they mean by national security. But it doesn't stop there. Remember Huawei? They've been banned from selling their cell phones in the U.S. for some years now. In their case and others, the U.S. has also cited security concerns. Is that really the case, though? Or is the government protecting homegrown businesses? Keep in mind there's nothing wrong with making sure businesses in your country are protected against unfair competition. When it comes to the world of tech, stakes get higher, much higher. Remember that key components of Apple products come from, guess where, China. Now, here's some numbers that might surprise you. 95% of the total iPhone supply chain comes from China. And 80% of that comes from one single plant in a place they now call iPhone City. No chance the government of the U.S. can change those numbers. This is going to play out in the years to come as this rivalry 
heats up on all fronts. Up next, speaking of Joe Biden, where's his plan to stabilize Social Security? He had one before. The question is, where did it go? This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. You may remember that in 2020, then-candidate Joe Biden promised to underpin Social Security by, among other things, taxing people making more than $400,000 a year. He also promised benefit increases for the lowest income recipients. And that proposal, by the way, would have lifted some 300-odd thousand Americans out of poverty. That one thing that he was proposing. Neither has happened yet. That would include his latest budget. And it comes even as Biden warns that Republicans are bound and determined to gut Social Security. On the other hand, Biden has promised quite a bit of spending to keep Medicare viable. Medicare, but not Social Security. Messaging from the Biden camp has gone from saying he is committed to strengthening Social Security to now saying he is about the business of just protecting it. He's up against some hard facts. Without some new revenue source, Social Security will run out of money in 2034. Now, most people, especially me, know politicians do not always keep campaign promises. If they did, America would have a fully built wall along its border with Mexico. Right, Donald? Yet strengthening one leg, the one leg, that older people have to stand on would be and should be a top priority. But here, Biden appears to waffle. He doesn't want to pile too many taxes on high-earning Americans, at least not higher taxes than his budget proposal already promises. Right now, the ceiling on Social Security taxes is around $160,000. In other words, you get taxed on $160,000 worth of income. Above that, it's essentially flat. And that's flat for everyone over $160,000. Raising the taxable rate to, say, a quarter of a million dollars or $300,000 doesn't seem to be excessive. Make no mistake. This program is one of the foundational planks on which the nation's promise is built. No politician should be looking to cut benefits or otherwise make it less than viable. Now, I'm not saying Joe Biden is trying to do that, and I know he doesn't want to hurt Social Security, but there's a difference between strengthening and protecting. And anybody that knows, for example... What happens when you look to protect yourself against certain things versus strengthening what you already have? There's a difference there. And how about Joe Biden? How about you just make good on your campaign promise, Mr. President? Please, Mr. President, it is necessary. And I'm not just saying that because I receive Social Security benefits just goes to show you how old I am. Between now and 2034, when the existing money runs out, millions 
and I do mean millions of Americans, will become eligible for Social Security. With lifespans lengthening, that means there will be a bigger and bigger pot that will be seeking to draw benefits. If you look, as some Republicans have suggested, at lowering benefits or increasing the age at which you can claim benefits, you are poking the snake. You could be in for a huge backlash. And I'm not saying Joe Biden's talking about or thinking about doing any of that. All I'm saying is he had a good proposal during his campaign. How about you just bring it back? Up next, how do you feel about permanent daylight savings time? Some members of Congress want to make it so. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. I'll make a wager that most people don't think much about daylight savings time versus standard time. And I don't think most people think about it more than maybe twice a year. The old spring forward, fall back thing. You know what I'm talking about. Well, as a nation, or at least most of it, springs forward, there are calls to make daylight savings time permanent. In fact, Massachusetts Senator Edward Markey managed to get it extended twice, once in 1985 and again in 2005. He's known around Congress as the Sun King for his efforts to make daylight savings longer or permanent. Last year, the Senate actually voted unanimously for a bill he co-sponsored to make daylight savings time permanent. Strangely enough, the Sunshine Protection Act, as it was called, died in the House of Representatives. There were questions raised about whether the act was safe and whether it was healthy. There are also interests, lobbying interests, that want to make standard time permanent as opposed to daylight savings time. Ironically enough, a poll taken last year, and you can't place all that much faith in all polling, but this is an interesting one because I'm not sure there are that many polls about this. 44% of those surveyed wanted daylight savings time permanently. 13% wanted standard time permanently. And 35% wanted things to remain as they are. I personally have always kind of liked daylight savings time. It keeps the sun out longer in winter, and the sun stays out longer also in warmer weather. Now, understand that uh, daylight savings time, standard time, we're only talking about an hour here. The fact of the matter is, during the winter, the sun goes down earlier and has nothing to do with time changes. It has to do with nature. Mother Nature. But I still like that extra hour. I like the sun to go down at 6 o'clock rather than at 5 o'clock. And of course, in some parts of the world, it goes down even earlier than that. 4 o'clock. 3.30. And I think that daylight savings time would tend to level level that out. Now, the other side of that equation is that, sadly... It will be dark later at night or earlier in the morning. In other words, if you set 
standard time at 5 a.m. and you spring forward with daylight savings, it's not going to get light until later. Now, of course, that doesn't make any difference during the summer, but during the winter months, it could mean 7 o'clock. The sun's still not out. And there are some people that are extremely bothered by that. The fact of the matter is that daylight savings time and Eastern Standard Time, or Standard Time generally, um, came into force because of farmers who had crops to maintain and found that changing the times twice a year helped their harvests. We're not an agricultural economy so much anymore, but there are questions. There are some people that say they're going back and forth or specifically trying to mandate year-round daylight savings time would cause sleep interruption. Now, again, that's never bothered me, at least as far as I know, during daylight savings. Now, I'm just one person. Maybe others feel differently, but allowing individual states to decide whether or not to keep daylight savings all year round kind of sort of makes sense to me. Now, it could create situations where state legislatures end up yo-yoing daylight savings or you have adjacent states that have uh, daylight savings and standard time, but that happens as it is now. There are some places in America where there is no change between daylight savings and standard time. I say bring on year-round daylight savings time. It works at least for me. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.